The following message has been brought to you by Trinity Baptist Church. For more information, visit us on the web at trinitybc.org. Open your Bibles up to www.ancestry.com. Many of you know where this passage is located. If you don't, it's in the very beginning of your New Testament. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. In these verses, we find the ancestry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 1, in verse 1, we begin reading this morning. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Amminadab, and Amminadab begot Nashon. And Nashon begot Salmon. And Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon begot Rehoboam, Rehoboam begot Abijah, and Abijah begot Asa. Asa begot Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat begot Joram, and Joram begot Uzziah. Uzziah begot Jotham, Jotham begot Ahaz, Ahaz begot Hezekiah, Hezekiah begot Manasseh, Manasseh begot Ammon, and Ammon begot Josiah. Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time that they were carried away to Babylon. Verse 12. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Shealtiel, and Shealtiel begot Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel begot Abiad, and Abiad begot Eliakim, and Eliakim begot Azar. Azar begot Zadok, Zadok begot Achim, and Achim begot Eliad, and Eliad begot Eleazar, and Eleazar begot Nathan, and Nathan begot Jacob. And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until Christ are 14 generations. Now you may be asking yourself, I wonder how many times he had to read through that passage to get all of those names correct uh, properly, and I will remind you of what I was instructed by one of my professors in Bible college whenever you come across these names in the Bibles. Just say them like you think you know what how they're supposed to be pronounced, and nobody out there listening has any idea how they're supposed to be pronounced, so you just pick it and you go with it. I hope I did okay, but if you, you want to get the correct pronunciation, I got informed after the first service by our librarian, our librarian, Miss Crawford, that we actually in our church library have a children's book with a CD that is entitled The Ballads of Matthew's Begots. I thought about playing it for us this morning, but it would take about three and a half minutes, and then I'd get you out three and a half minutes. But I did later, but I did want to let you know there, there is this available for you if you want to check it out after church and, and go home jamming out to The Ballads of Matthew's Begots and all of those names that we just went through. It's there in the library for you to check out uh, after service. It was in 1814 
after the signing of the Treaty of Kiel, that my great-great-great-great-great-grandfather fled the country of Denmark. Uh, he, he left with just his family. Um, he was actually a war hero of the Napoleonic Wars. He had gained such a following that King Frederick VI uh, became jealous and actually put a bounty on his head, and so he gathered his wife and his children, and he fled. He actually landed in North Carolina, where he became known by that name, Denmark. And you should be greatly concerned if you believe that story because your preacher is a liar and he totally fabricated that story and gave it to you with a straight face. I pulled it off twice this morning. That is totally untrue. I know nothing of my ancestry. My last name, if you don't know me, is Denmark. But and people ask me all the time, why is your last name Denmark? And I look at them and ask them, why is your last name Smith? Everybody's last name is Smith. Why is your... I have no idea why my last name is Denmark. I don't know anything past my grandfather's, and likely the story is you don't really either. Now, there may be one or two of you that have done some research into your ancestors, and you can claim to be the great-grand-great-great-grandchild of Elvis Presley or something like that, but for most of us, in our day and age, in our culture in which we live, your ancestry plays very little to no role at all at your status in the society that we live in, uh, the culture that surrounds us, the possessions that you own. However, in other cultures, even still today, and especially in generations past, your ancestry meant a great deal. It was a very important thing for the Hebrews, for a Jewish man. Your ancestry meant very much. It was vitally important in the Jewish culture. It was so very well maintained and documented in the Jewish culture, in the day and age even of Christ. Why did it matter so much? It proved, for one, their identity as a Jew. That if you know anything about the Old Testament law even, to worship the Lord in certain um, ways and, and to enter even into the temple, you had to be of Jewish descent. You had to be of the seed of, of Abraham. Their, their genealogy would validate their identity as a Hebrew. You know much of the land ownership and the promised land. When they entered the promised land, they divided the land territorially according to the tribes um, of which the, that each group was comprised. And so the tribe of Judah got the southern region and, and Ephraim and Manasseh and um, all, all the different tribes as the land was divided. And so as a, a citizen of the, the nation of, of Israel, your, your heritage meant a great ordeal when it came to your rights to certain stakes and lands. Not only the immediate heritage of your father, but even of what tribe and of what, what sect of each tribe that you belong to to lay claim, to lay legal stake upon the land in which you were entitled to. There were other rights that were given according to one's heritage. Of course, just as we would still today have that identity found in, in a prior generation, if you could claim to be the, the great-great-great-grandchildren or whatever, whatever it would be of Teddy Roosevelt or something like that, it would earn you some uh, title of, of status. Much the same if one could claim that they were um, of the descendants of David, for instance. Um, a, a higher status could be uh, bestowed upon them, even culturally, because of it. A, a, a lineage, a, a genealogy, was of great importance for them. It was required even to serve in certain capacities, uh, such as a priest. Not anyone could become a priest. 
You had to be of, of the tribe of the Levites. You would have to validate your heritage as being a Levite. The kings who reigned and ruled over Israel came of the tribe of, of Judah. There was a, a lineage, a genealogy that mattered. And so it's not by accident when we open up our Bibles and begin reading in the New Testament that we begin by reading a genealogy. A portion of Scripture, be honest, that you often just read over. That you never spend much time dwelling upon or thinking about why or what even is meant by Matthew and recording it as he does. And yet, it's not by accident that it's been placed here. Matthew, even beginning his gospel, is setting out in the first words in this genealogy to to validate that Jesus truly is the Messiah, that He truly is the Christ. And He does so first in this genealogy by showing there is a direct lineage going all the way back to David and all the way back to Abraham. And He traces that out to give a, a, a genealogy that validates that Jesus truly is the Christ. He truly is the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And He will, for the remainder of the book even, continue to validate that truth, that Jesus truly is the Christ, the Messiah. He he will quote Old Testament passages many, many times showing how Jesus in his life fulfilled the messianic expectations that were set forth in the Old Testament, pointing to the life and the works of Jesus Christ, from his miracles to his teachings, all the way up to his death, burial, and resurrection, most especially the, the, the grand mission for which Jesus came to give his life a ransom for the sins of his people. Matthew, through the whole gospel, is going to continue that, that validation, that proof, that evidence. Jesus truly is the Christ, the Son of God incarnate, the long-awaited, long-anticipated Messiah. This genealogy is important. It's in your Bible for a reason. And so as we begin a study of the Gospel of the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, it is fitting even as we approach Christmas week that we give it a little bit of thought this morning. That we don't merely skip over it as we often do in our reading and as preachers often do even in their preaching, but we reflect upon the words that God gives to us here. And all of these names, we don't have time to look to all of their stories, but a life is lived with each of these names. And there is much that we can learn as we think about this genealogy. And so for this morning, what I want us to do, just for a brief moment that we have together remaining, I want us to walk through and just see a couple of valuable lessons that we learn from this genealogy of Jesus. Notice first, the genealogy of Jesus, that it is a story of history, of history, of a factual history of a person and of the lineage of this person. I don't know if you know it or not, but if you ever read any mythologies, mythologies never begin with a genealogy. It's not the way that you introduce a mythological figure. You don't trace a literal historical lineage of people who walked the face of planet Earth that, that walked before this person came. A mythology is a fabrication of someone's imagination. It usually begins in the realm of imagination, far out and removed from real life. The Scriptures don't begin in such fashion. The New Testament doesn't begin in such a way. It begins concreted, anchored in, grounded in real people. It's grounded in real life. 
It's rounded in real historical events that occurred. It's not presented as something mythological or a made-up fairy tale. It's presented as a true, factual history. Of course, as you can imagine, some read this genealogy and they tried their best to tear it apart and, and put, put, put uh, punch holes into it to, to, to make it sound as if it's been fabricated. And I want to just walk through really briefly an introduction Well, it's really my first point, but it's an introduction to the next two points that are coming uh, to cover some of those accusations people make against this genealogy. One accusation is, well, I read the genealogy Matthew gives, and then I read the genealogy that Luke gives in his gospel, and the two are totally different, and they are. They're totally different. People say, that's just Luke making something up and Matthew making something up, and they don't agree because they're both fabricated. Um, stories, and I would say, you know, just use your brain a little bit and realize what Matthew's doing and realize what Luke is doing. Matthew in verse 18 tells the story from Joseph's perspective. Luke tells the story of the Christmas narrative from Mary's perspective. Matthew traces the genealogy here through Matthew or through Joseph, through Joseph's lineage, and you see that even in verse 16 and the way that he words it. And Jacob begot Joseph the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. And he's about to go into verse 18 to describe the virgin birth. Uh, Mary never knowing Joseph and giving birth uh, of of a holy conception uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew is fixing to present that and teach that. Even in his genealogy, he changes its form. And he doesn't say, Jacob begot Jesus. No, he says, and Jacob begot or I'm sorry, and Joseph begot Jesus. He says, and Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. He is tracing the lineage of Jesus through his stepfather, shall we call him, um, all the way, or an adopted even, Jesus adopted by Joseph in the sense it was not his biological child, all the way back to David, all the way back to Abraham. When we get to Luke's gospel, Luke actually, I believe, traces that lineage through Mary. the the mother of Jesus, and shows in both ancestries, you can trace them back to David and to Abraham. Another question some have as they read this is, if you know your Old Testament history, you will know that there are some people who have been skipped over. So, for instance, in verse 8, between Jehoram and Uzziah, there are three kings, Ahaziah, Joash, and Amaziah, who were skipped over. In verse 11, between Josiah and Jeconiah, Jehoiakim is skipped over. And you say, well, what is Matthew doing? Matthew's doing something that was not very uncommon at all in that day and age in the giving of a genealogy. He's, he's, he's created here a selective genealogy. Um, he's pulling out those people that he chooses to identify most and skips over, for whatever reason in his thinking, the lesser important people. And he's also creating this parallel of 14, 14, and 14, which we'll, we'll get to in a moment, but realize it's a selective genealogy. He's not listing uh, literally even in the, the Greek. The word father can mean grandfather. It can mean great-grandfather. It can mean great-great-great-grandfather, an ancestor. And so when it speaks of so-and-so being the father of so-and-so, even though it was two or three generations later, that's an accurate way of putting it there in the Greek. So why does he choose to do 14, 14, and 14 and conclude? So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14, from David until captivity in Babylon are 14, and from the captivity of Babylon until Christ are 14. He divides it up into three, 
three eras of Israel's history, from Abraham to David, from David to the Babylonian exile, from the exile to the coming of Christ. I believe he does this primarily as a, a, a form of easy memorization, 14, 14, and 14. I think he does this also theologically to make a point that God is sovereign over all the eras, all the seasons of Israel's history. One thing that you will hear me say often as we walk through the Gospel of Matthew together is that we have to realize the way in which Matthew is writing, the intent in his writing. We, in our Western way of thinking, our post-enlightened way of thinking, when we want a biography, we want something that's going to give to us all the details, all the facts, set in order, even chronological order, laid out before us. It's the way we think when we think of a biography. We need to realize that Matthew is actually writing here a theological biography. He is writing a biography about the Lord Jesus Christ. The four Gospels are, are four different portraits about who Jesus is, but their intent and purpose is not to set forth every single detail of every event in a chronological fashion. If you've read the Gospels, you know they're not really in chronological order. Sometimes different stories are grouped together. And even though chronologically they, they happen not in that time order that they're given. And you say, why are the gospel writers doing that? Because they're writing theological biographies, meaning their intent in writing is to teach us something about God. They're writing to teach us some truth about who Jesus is as the Son of God and His deity and His divine nature and the mission that He's come to accomplish. And so their intent is not give you all the details neatly and nicely laid out, telling entirely every detail of the story, every detail of the story in its exact chronological order. This is why Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John don't tell the same stories, and even the stories that they tell, they don't tell them the same way. Because the main point in their writing is theological. They're teaching us something in the way Matthew tells the story even. It's teaching us something unique about God and about the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're theological biographies. And so as he gives this 14, 14, and 14 breakdown, I believe Matthew's giving us a, a memorizable way to remember this, this concept of, of the lineage of, of Jesus, the, the, the genealogy of Christ, but also he's teaching us theologically over the eras of human history, of Israel's history in particular, our God is a sovereign God working His purposes through it all. From Abraham to David, from David to the Babylonian exile, when God's people thought God had forsaken them, couldn't understand why they were tore out of their homeland, uh, why the Babylonians overcame them, though God had delivered them so many times before. The temple laid flat, laid waste, brought into a foreign country once again as they were in Egypt as slaves in bondage. It was a time of great great derision, great fear for, for the people of God. Even the uh, sad thought that their God was weaker than the gods of the Babylonians. And Isaiah is written even to them that we'll look to in a moment to encourage them and remind them, no, God's sovereign even here. God's working His purposes to convince you, lead you again to your recognition of your sinfulness, of your your idolatry to even give to you a promise of restoration. We'll look at it in a moment. 14, 14, 14, breakdown. It's memorable. There's some that speculate. It's, it's even the numerical value of the name David. In the Hebrew, there are no vowels. And so DV and D, if you assign it a numerical value, would be 4, 6, and 4. And that totals up to 14. And so maybe Matthew is playing a little numerical game here. Just again, another memory device that he gives. But ultimately, the theological point is that God was at work through all the generations 
of Israel's history, leading to this moment, leading to the coming of the Christ, of the Lord Jesus. And what we read here before us is a a factual history. It's not a fabricated mythology that the life of Jesus is more documented and attested to than the life of nearly any other historical figure in, in all of, of history. I always loved the testimony of C.S. Lewis. He was a scholar, academic scholar, who was an atheist, who, who was an expert in mythologies. And he began to study the Scriptures, believing they too were nothing more than a mythology, just as all the Greek mythologies. But as he began studying the Word of God, he realized this is not written as a mythology. Whether it's true or not was still up to debate for him for a season of his life, but he realized right off the bat this isn't written as a a, a mythology. This is written as a factual telling of the person named Jesus Christ and what he came to accomplish, what he came to do. So realize first this genealogy, it is a story of history. I'm going to move on for sake of time. Notice secondly, it is a story of promise. It's a story of promise. It reveals to us that our God is a faithful God who always keeps His Word. No matter the brokenness of a life or the messiness of a situation, our God is a faithful God who keeps His promises, who keeps His Word. These three eras of Israel's history are all marked by promises that God gave to His people. First, Abraham. If you know much of the life of Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, God called this man named Abraham. He was a nobody in the land of the Chaldeans, and God promised to him, I'm going to make of you a great people. Your descendants will be more numerable than the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore. I'm going to give to you a land. And he said, I'm going to bless those that bless you. I'm going to curse those that curse you. And he says, through you will come a blessing to all the nations, all the peoples of the earth. I've made a promise to Abraham. God made a promise to David, 2 Samuel chapter 7. He promised to David, there will be one of your descendants, one who comes of your seed, who will be raised as a king, who will have a kingdom that never ends, who will rule and reign eternally over this kingdom. A a, a Davidic covenant, a promise made to, to David of a descendant who would rule and reign over God's people, over God's kingdom. He gave a promise even to the Israelites in exile. Isaiah, again, I just mentioned it was written to those who, written beforehand, but to be read by those who would go into the captivity. And in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, we'll just read one of these promises. It says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We know this. We read this verse every Christmas season. Realize this promise was given by God to the people in exile that that God would redeem them. That God would restore Israel upon the throne of David and over His kingdom. Um, God's going to raise this, this Son of God, this child up to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, for the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And then we read a passage like Isaiah 53 that speaks of the suffering servant of the Lord. This this servant who comes, this child who would be born, would be one who would suffer for the sins of his people. He would be bruised. The chastisement of our peace would be upon him. The Old Testament saint couldn't figure that out. We look back and see it so clearly in the cross of Christ. But the promise was given. 
God would redeem His people. God would carry away their sins. God would restore Israel. God would renew uh, uh, His people into a, a, a a new relationship even with Him. Give to them a new heart. Realize the fulfillment of all of those promises came forth to us in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 20 says, For all the promises of God in Jesus, in Him, are yes, and in Him, amen, to the glory of God through us. All of those longings of salvation and redemption and restoration and of a, a seed of David who would rule and reign over a kingdom forever, of a promise of Abraham from one who would come who would be a blessing to all peoples everywhere, you realize all of that led up to and pointed to this moment where Jesus the Christ was born of the Virgin Mary in this manger. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. I'm not going to get into end times and how God, I believe, will fulfill these promises as well within an ethnic Israel and end time events. That's up for a further debate when we study Revelation or Ezekiel or the the latter portion of Daniel. don't want to get into that this morning, but I don't want that to rob you of this truth, that all of those promises came to their culmination, came to their grand fulfillment in Jesus And Jesus being born of the Virgin Mary. And Jesus living the life that He lived of perfection in our place. And Jesus dying at Calvary for our sins. Being buried and raised again. John, or Matthew, is is pointing to that here. Jesus, the Christ. Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus, the suffering servant who would redeem the people of God. Prophesied in Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 9 and many other Old Testament passages. God is showing that His promises have come true in this genealogy, through all of Israel's history, through all the ebb and flow of of Israel's history, the good and the bad and the ugly, God was at work. And God brings it to this appointed day in which Jesus the Messiah is born. And He's born the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. It's a story of history. It's a story of promise. Notice thirdly and lastly, it's a story of grace. A story of grace. God is not only a God of promise who keeps His Word, but God is a God of grace who chooses broken people and messy situations to accomplish His purposes. If you were to read the stories behind all of these names. We don't know much about some of them, especially in that time frame from the exile to Jesus, but prior to the exile, we know quite a bit about all of those guys' names there. We don't have time this morning to look to them all, but if we were able to look to them all, what you would find is you would not pick any of them to be in the lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ. None are worthy. None could proclaim in their arrogance and pride of who they were and what they did. I deserve to be the great-great-great-great-grandfather, the great-great-great-great-grandmother of the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll look at just a few. Abraham, although he was a man of great faith, listed in Hebrews chapter 11, if you know the story of the life of Abraham there in the, the early chapters of Genesis, 
you realize he was by no means a devout, like, godly man to the extent we would hope to be. He was one who, when he and his wife Sarah went into Egypt, he lied about her being his wife because he feared God wouldn't be able to protect them and that they would kill his wife, or kill him to take his wife to be their own because she was, says was a beautiful woman. And so he lies to them about who Sarah was. He does that a number of times, actually, and causes them um, heartache each time, difficulty each time. Uh, but, but one of his greatest sins is that he was in his older age when God called him and made that promise to him. But many years went by after the promise, and he and Sarah uh, still had no children. Even in their older age, even after the promise, no, no son was ever born to Sarah. And so he began to doubt God. And if you know the story, he took Hagar, his handmaid, uh, and conceived a son through her. Said, really? Yeah, he did. And God, in his grace, would let him later be able to conceive a child of the, the promised heir, the promised seed, through Sarah. And Isaac was born unto them. Look to Jacob. Jacob's name means trickster. If you know the story, he stole the birthright that was really due to Esau, his older brother. You look to Judah, who sold his younger brother Joseph into slavery. You look to David. And we know the life of David, all the good and great of David, but we also know all the bad and ugly of David, a man who stole a woman place he shouldn't have been, looking out at a time that he should have been at war over his kingdom. He saw a woman bathing, and he desired to have her, and he inquired, and though he knew she was married, he took her, conceived a child through her, committed adultery, and then, because of this child that was conceived, decided, I've got to murder her husband by sending him, Uriah, to the front lines of battle, where he knew he would not make it back from war. He was an adulterer. He was a murderer. Solomon, a womanizer, over 700 wives and 300 concubines. What was he thinking? <laughs> women are listed here. That It's very uncommon in the genealogy for these women to be listed. Tamar, the first of which, who deceived her father-in-law by dressing up as a prostitute and conceived twins by him. That would be Judah. Rahab was a Canaanite prostitute. You know the story of Rahab there in Jericho. She took the two spies that were sent into the city and she hid them and later let them escape and God spared her life. But not only did God spare her life as a Canaanite prostitute, she is in the lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ. She's the great, 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 however many times you've got to count at grandmother of Jesus. And then you go just one generation down and you've got another Gentile who is brought in, Ruth, who is a Moabite woman. And she came back to Israel from the land of the Moabites with her mother-in-law, Naomi, because Naomi's son, her husband, died. Uh, they, they needed to come back into the land in hopes of being able to survive. And Ruth went with Naomi. And there, Boaz became her kinsman redeemer and took her in. Bathsheba is listed only not by name, but by a description. By her, verse 6, who had been the wife of Uriah. Now, we could argue there was a greater guilt upon David and his abuse of his power, but the Scriptures do not tell us that Bathsheba resisted at all with this inquiry of David. And Bathsheba never appealed to any power that she could have appealed to, no matter the cost, when Uriah, her husband, was being sent to the front lines. And so 
it at a minimum infers that Bathsheba was implicit in this sin to some degree. And so Bathsheba even, uh, an adulterer, all in the name of, all in the lineage of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the list goes on. Each one, if we were to look to, really these that we've looked to aren't the worst of the worst. Some of the worst are the, some of those kings that were listed there at the latter end of, of Judah's history in the, the promised land. And these are in the lineage of Jesus Christ. God is fulfilling His purposes even through their brokenness and even through their messiness. That this genealogy, ultimately as we read it, it is a story of God's grace. It's a story of a gracious God who doesn't just give up and turn His back in the mess of humanity that, that we make in our lives, that they made in their lives, but He's a God who continues to keep His Word, a God who continues to be faithful even when His people are unfaithful. It's a reminder to us this Christmas season, not only that God's promises never fail, but that God's grace is always sufficient. Not only that His promises never fail, but that His grace is always sufficient. I love what Patrick Schreiner wrote on these verses. He wrote and he said, If God has pledged Himself to you, He isn't letting you go no matter what you do. And then he says, Israel couldn't out the promises of God, and neither can you. You believe once saved, always saved. Yeah, I believe once I'm a child of God, there aren't orphans of God. And if He's saved in my grace, He's going to keep me by grace. And, and He keeps that which I've committed unto Him against that day. I'm persuaded of that. I, I am. I believe I can't out the promises of God. Israel couldn't out the promises of God. That's not a license for me to sin. It's actually the motivation of why I don't want to sin. Because God has saved me. And His promises are being fulfilled in me. The story of His grace, His undeserved favor poured out upon His people, even upon all humanity. As you read this genealogy, what you see, if you know the stories behind the names, is that God chose people that we would never choose, who went through things we would never want to go through. It's a story of brokenness. It's a story of sin and of grotesque sin, of adultery and of murder, of incest, of prostitution. That is what we read of if you know the stories behind these names and they are within the family of God. The literal heritage. This genealogy is a story of history. It's a factual account. It's a story of promise. It shows us God's promises will, will endure. It's a story of grace. Maybe this Christmas is hard for you. And maybe it's not the most wonderful time of the year for you as it is for some. And the reasonings for which that may be true um, vary from person to person. Maybe it's financial stress that this season can just make worse. Maybe it's family conflict of some sort, family division that this season only exasperates, only, only makes more apparent. Maybe it's the first time you're celebrating this season without a loved one. For some of you, I know it is. Some of you that have spent many, many Christmases together with a spouse who's not with you because they're with the Lord. Maybe it's the 20th Christmas without a loved one, and still, I know, in 
people who shared with me, their absence was always, always felt at every gathering. Take comfort this Christmas as we celebrate the fact that Jesus came through a broken lineage. A, a lineage of messed up, broken people. And He entered a, a broken world. A world where the slaughtering of the innocents uh, would occur under Herod just just a time frame after His birth. A, a world where there was no room in the end. A, a world where He was born in the humble beginnings of an impoverished Jewish family in a remote region outside of Jerusalem. He, he, he came through a broken lineage. He entered a, a world of, of complete brokenness. Why? So that you and I might have His peace in the midst of our broken lives. That, that God doesn't promise that there won't be difficulty and sorrow in this life. He, he says just the opposite. This life, because of sin, is filled with brokenness. It's filled with not only your sin, but the sins that others commit to you and the consequences of sin, whether that's particular specific sins or whether it's just generally the, the consequences of sin that we go through in this life because of original sin, because of the, the death that is around, the sickness, the accidents that occur, the, the loss of loved ones. This is not heaven. The beauty of the Christmas story is God came down. God entered our suffering and He took it on and He lived the life on this earth and the brokenness of this life, enduring it all, staying faithful and true to God, obedient to His will through it all, to give His life a ransom at Calvary for your sins and my sins, that we now, even in the midst of our brokenness that we're living in right now, we can have within us the peace of God. Peace that passes all understanding because we know the Prince of Peace has come. And so as we close, the question for you this morning is do you know Him? Do you know Jesus the Christ? The Son of David. The Son of Abraham. Heavenly Father, we come to You and I pray through Your Spirit You would take Your Word Lord, convict where conviction is needed. Lead to repentance where repentance is needed. Lord, give encouragement where encouragement is needed. Lord, do what only You can do through Your Spirit, through Your Word. And sanctify Your people. Convict the, the lost of their need of salvation. Lord, but work. Work in this place, we pray, for Christ's sake. Lord, we thank You for Him. We thank You for reason that we have to celebrate. He came down into the brokenness of this world. We may know peace. Eternal peace. Peace with you, God Almighty. But even in the midst of our sorrow, deep down inside our heart, there's a joy that endures because of Him. Lord, work, I pray now in this moment. I ask in Jesus' precious name.